Every one of us in this room, we've got dreams, things with all our heart we'd really like to do. But I promise you the only way to get there is to make today count. Start and be faithful in the small things. Welcome back to There Is Always A Way podcast with Dr. Jay Strack. Today's guest is the best-selling author of Defying ISIS, preserving Christianity in the place of its birth and in your own backyard. He's a humanitarian who's been called one of the world's most influential young leaders. He is a widely read opinion columnist whose work has appeared in The Washington Post, Fox News, Relevant Magazine, and CNN. He's the founder of the Kairos Company, a boutique consultancy, and has served for a dozen years at the 100,000 student Liberty University, where he was a professor, chaplain, and senior vice president before moving to Hollywood to work with a multiple Emmy award-winning television producer. Today, there's always a way with Johnny Moore. Here's Dr. Strack. Well, good day, and I want to welcome you to two amazing events being combined in one because our guest warrants double exposure, all right? Number one, I wanna welcome everyone to There's Always A Way podcast. So whether you're watching or listening, uh, you're part of a series of interviews with those that have made a tremendous influence and impact on my life, or they're making a tremendous impact on the world in which we live. So business, sports, uh, faith, the faith community, uh, the political scene. Uh, we try to cover a lot of material. So I want to, first of all, welcome our guest, Johnny Moore. Johnny, thank you for being with us. And we're actually filming on the 4th of July. So you're making a real sacrifice for us, uh, some family time. And with your schedule, I know you have to bubble wrap uh, family time. But Johnny, I want our listeners, and again, I remind uh, you and I remind everyone, because every year I invite you and you're gracious to come to speak at our SLU 201 in Washington, D.C. And the reason I always invite you to speak and, you know, we'll have 14, 1500 students uh, for those live events uh, is because your life illustrates your life as a journey. And, you know, so the two great tenets we try to teach at Student Leadership University is the future belongs to those who are prepared. And number two, what I do today determines my tomorrow. And as I look at your life, and I've been privileged to know you a long time, your life illustrates those two principles better than almost anybody I've ever met. So to me, you're just a great inspiration and example for all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of high school and university students. But we also have pastors, denominational leaders, business leaders, sports executives, uh, those in the military, and uh, even at Central Command and other places, the Pentagon. So, and and of course, senior pastor of mega churches. So. We speak to a whole gamut, but again, your journey, your life is perfect. So I'm combining you with letting our students that are taking SLU 201 Reimagine be able to experience a little Johnny Moore, uh, even though we're having to get jiggy with our program this year. But then number two, what a great voice to speak truth in, because 
we've, we're really still dealing with four or five issues that are not going away and are gonna be with us for a long time. So that long in introduction, Johnny, let me tee you up. First of all, what is the first thing that comes as an author, as a humanitarian, as somebody that's been considered one of the top 25 uh, evangelical voices, by the way, that makes us old guys that have been at a long time feel real good about ourselves. But that's <laughs> a whole other story. I'm in counseling on that. But, but Johnny, what's the first thing that comes to you in all the books you've written, places you've been around the world? What's the first thing that comes to Johnny Moore's mind when he hears, there's always a way? Well, I mean, let me let me first say how grateful I am uh, to be able to spend this time with you. And, and one of the great honors of my year every year is when you invite me to SLU. I mean, I, I remember as a student, I, I you know I was never able to go to SLU, uh, but I was I, I knew about it, and I, I I always had this fascination with it. And it's a it's a real honor each year to look at those young lives. And I, I don't know a single human being in the United States of America that, and for that matter, I think around the world uh, that has trained more leaders, uh, more effective leaders uh, than, 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 than JSTRAC. And so it's a, it's a, a privilege to be with you. Um, when, when that question, you know, or statement, you know, there's always a way, you know, I, I, I immediately, I'll just tell you what I immediately thought of. I, I, I thought of the apostle Paul who, who said that I was the least of all the apostles and he lists all of his weaknesses. And then he says, but I worked harder than all the rest. I worked harder than everybody else. And I, I really think that um, sometimes we get fixated on talent and, and opportunity and all of these things. And I, I just really, really believe that the greatest gift that we give to God sometimes is to do everything for his glory, which means to work really, really hard. You know, I, the, the great evangelical movement that we're a part of, uh, the, which is the single greatest missionary movement in Christian history, the most influential Christian movement in history, Christian history in, a, in just over a century, there are now seven or 800 million evangelicals around the world. And one of the things that's, that sparked that movement is the modern missionary movement uh, and, and that immediately preceded it. And, you know, there's a famous watchword of the, of the, of the missionary movement was to reach the world in our generation, you know, and I, I guess it was William Carey who, uh, a lot of people have said it, but he's probably the one most famous for saying it. You know, he said to work like everything depends upon you and pray like everything depends upon God. And I, I just, I just really, really believe that, uh, that we do both simultaneously. We, we don't, um, we, you know, we, we don't just uh, push all the responsibility off on God and we never become our own gods. We always recognize how much we need him. Hmm. And then every single day we ask what's most important. And then we ask what's next. And if you care enough about something to say something about it to someone else, whether that's publicly or at your dinner table or, or even to think about it a lot, then you ought to care enough to act. And we can't always control our life circumstances, our natural talents. We can't control where we were born or when we were born or how much opportunity we had when we were born we can always control how hard we're willing to work. Wow, well, I love your insight on the way you broke down that passage uh, and, the, and the life and the legacy of the Apostle Paul that uh, I'm the least worthy 
And so therefore, out of gratitude for what the Lord did for me, I've tried to work harder than everybody else. Uh, my new favorite quote, and you know, uh, I had a student come up one time who'd been through all four of our programs and four or five annual youth pastor summits. And he said, Dr. Jay, I got a problem. Help me with it. I said, man, I'll try. He said, I got 75 quotes through 10 years where you have said, this is my favorite quote. <laughs> and he said, can you help me order them? I said, get away. I'm going to hurt you. You know, so, uh, but anyway, uh, so my favorite quote right now is that leaders are 5% born and 95% made. Hmm. And I love the play on that because everybody's always going, you know, are leaders made or born? And of course, the great answer is, well, I think they're all born. But, uh, but you know, there are some that are born and they do have looks, talent, more gray matter than some of us have. I kind of identify with the second group, those that have got to get there by sweat equity, you know, earn my right at the table by just working hard and, and, and not worrying about who gets the credit. So, but I love the way you broke that down. Now, Johnny, I, I failed to mention, and I just want to frame it so everybody will understand the importance of some of the other questions I'm going to ask you. But not only, uh, you know, were you at Liberty University, 100,000-ish. I mean, I know it's, all, it's growing every year. But you were a chaplain there. You were a professor of religion. And then, uh, where I really got to know you, you were spiritual development. Uh, I forget the exact title. It was campus pastor or a director of spiritual development or whatever it was, but you were the one that brought in the uh, chapel speakers, interviewed some of them, uh, made it made sure that those students were hearing, getting an opportunity to hear from folks that usually evangelicals wouldn't even get a chance to listen to. But so you worked with Jerry Falwell Sr. So I, I have to ask you. What's the first thing that comes to mind as a young man who Jerry Falwell not only believed in, but somebody that he placed his dream to a great extent in your hands? Uh, so what a privilege that is to, to have had that lineage with Jerry Falwell. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you, the name Jerry Falwell's seniors mentioned? Well, I mean, he was willing to take risks on young, inexperienced leaders. I, I was one of them. You know, I, I, I had, there was no reason for him to give me the level of responsibility he gave me when he gave it to me. I'm just no natural reason. It just had to have been that God was leading him to do it. And then he had enough faith to act on that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and that's, by the way, the word that comes to my mind when I think of him. I mean, he was a man of great faith. Uh, he, he, he was talking about Liberty University, as, as, you, as you remember, I don't even remember it, but uh, I, but I heard the story so many times, I feel like I was there. You know, there, there was a tent on a barren mountain. There was no university there. And, and he, he would say, you know, th this school is going to become, uh, for, for evangelicals, what, what Brigham Young is and what Notre Dame is. You know, he, he, he had this vision and he, he didn't wait for the vision to become reality uh, to, to uh, live up to it. He lived up to the vision when he had the vision because he believed it came from God. 
you know, he, he had, he, and I remember all these things, you know, I, I remember his, his annual speech and sermon. It depends on, depending upon the environment he was in, whether it was a speech or a sermon, but calling us to never quit and to never give up. And, and, mm -hmm. and he would say, you know, he quote these great fathers of the church, like, like Robert Murray McChaney, you know, what a man is, he is alone on his knees before God, you know, and, and, and nothing more. You know, he, he, he would say, say things like, you don't measure a man's, um, a, a man by his talent or his wealth as the world does, but rather by what it takes to discourage him. You know, you, you, would, you would sit and you would hear him again and again and again say these, say these profound statements, and he would say them again and again and again because he knew that we needed it again and again and again. Mm. You know, I, I, my whole engagement with the, with the public square and is, is inspired by uh, an, an idea that he taught all of us, which has been lost, actually, by a lot of political activists uh, on, on the right, which was uh, the idea of co-belligerency. You know, uh, Jerry Falwell actually wasn't involved in the public square. He was reluctant to be involved in the public square. You know, he was one of these pastors who had this mentality that he had to stay out of that in order to reach the world. And then what happened was a series of events, and in particular, Roe v. Wade, and his son, Jonathan, who, who now pastors Thomas Road Baptist Church, came up to him one day with newspaper in hand and said, Dad, what are we going to do about this? And it was the voice of a child, his own child, cry, somehow unbeknownst to his, what was going on, his own child was crying out for his future generation. And Jerry Fall decided he had to do something. That was the latest in a series of events. And, and it was people that were influential in his life, like Francis Schaeffer. You know, and Francis Schaeffer taught him, um, you know, this, this idea of co-belligerency, which is, you know, you don't have to agree on everything in order to work together on one thing. Um, and that's an idea that, that Francis Schaeffer got from Carl Henry. And, you know, the, the, the lineage goes back in the Church, of, Church of, of Jesus Christ. You know, and that, that shapes my view of the public square. It's, it's the, way that, uh, the way Jerry Fowell approached the, the moral majority in the 1980s. In a, in a time where a fundamentalist Baptist preacher, he graduated from Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, um, you know, a, a time where the church was withdrawing from culture, Jerry Fowell leaned into culture and he said, I will, I will work with anybody that cares about these issues. And he, he worked, you know, with, with the Jewish community and the Mormon community. He worked with lots of libertarian atheists who didn't even believe uh, in God, but he would be willing to work together with them on these, on these issues of, of mutual concern, you know, and he was a fighter and yet he was always a pastor. And it, the amazing thing to me about Jerry Falwell was he was able to always maintain relationships with those who disagreed with him the most, with very, very few exceptions. And where there were exceptions, it wasn't because of Jerry Falwell. It was because of the other party. You know, there are all of these things. And I, I see in my own generation right now something that really, really alarms me. I, I, I see a generation of, of, of young leaders and Christian leaders who think that their best way of, of influencing uh, um, the, the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ is to leave the world to its own vices and to demand that people come into their churches in order to hear their messages. Uh, and, they, and they make their churches as comfortable as possible so people can come in. And in the end, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time in the secular world because of my human rights work and my religious freedom work, there's this strange thing. I look around on each side of me and I, I hardly ever see, in fact, I almost never see 
And I mean this with respect because some of these people are dear friends of mine, but I never see them there. I never see them there. What, what I see on the contrary is a lot of people who, are, who have different beliefs than I do, who come from different cultures than I do, even have different religions and political persuasions than I do, but they respect me because I am who I am. And I don't try to be someone that I'm not. And I, I, think, there's a, I think there's a very delicate line here hmm. between, between pastors who, who are, are playing a game, um, put, putting their, putting in, in Christian leaders who put their beliefs, uh, they shield their beliefs in order to keep the doors wide open. And in the end, uh, it is a disingenuous uh, gospel uh, that, that, that doesn't make the truth clear. And you don't have to be angry about the truth in order to, in order to make it clear. You can just live, live who you are. And Jerry Falwell you know, is a much misunderstood figure in, in American history, but I, but I can tell you, you know, he, he's, he's someone that ought to deserve the respect of every single Christian uh, leader because he agree or disagree with some of his ideas or some of his tactics at certain points. Uh, he was someone who, uh, who taught all of us how to engage in, in, in the public square. Uh, if we just paid attention, now I had to pay attention uh, because he took me under his wing when I, when I was 19 years old. And that also meant that, you know, he was tough. I'd make mistakes in my job. There was this, this one moment actually, Jay, where, um, I've been through a few moments, so I'm bracing already, you know. <laughs> well, it's, uh, uh, he, he, um, he asked me to do something, you know, I was a kid, like he was doing this campaign on campus and every day he wanted these three gigantic banners on campus before the students got to campus. And so my job was to get the banners printed and to, and to hang the banners up on campus every day. It was like the most menial job you can possibly imagine. Well, I got the banners printed but Liberty wasn't financially doing great at the time. And I didn't understand what overtime was because I was just, I mean, I was a 19 year old kid. I just literally, literally didn't know what I was doing. And so I caused this huge bill for the university getting the banners printed on time. And then, you know, he, he picks up the phone to call me and he's going to leave me a message because he, he started his days early. He started, he ended them late. You know, you know, you got those calls too. You get a call at one o'clock in the morning for Jerry Falwell, you know, <laughs> just like, you know, but then he started like five or six o'clock in the morning and he right. calls and he's leaving an off a voicemail. He's, his plan is to leave a voicemail at my desk um, to, you know, just tell me I, you know, I'd run this bill up and I needed to, you know, you know, I needed to, he was, he was scolding me for, for being irresponsible as an irresponsible kid. But I happened to be in the office when he called at like 6.45 or 7 in the morning. And he was just so struck by the fact that I was in the office so early in the morning. I'll, I'll never forget the phone. It just like threw him off. And yet he still like, you know, gave me, uh, taught me the hard lesson, you know, as a, as a young leader, I needed to learn something about budgets, you know. <laughs> but, but also, I mean, it, I think it left an impression in, in his mind that I was there working, you know, that, that, that early in the morning. You know, and, and we're all the products of, of, of these leaders. And I, 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 I'm very different than Jerry Falwell, uh, but, I, I, but I also uh, am in many ways, you know, I brought with me the lessons that he taught me. And I'm, I am so proud uh, that he was, he was one, of my, uh, one of my mentors. And I, I, get to, I, get to, I knew him back into high school. Um, and I got to know him, by the way, just because I went up to him after church service. You know, and I, and I, I just started a conversation with him. I just took the initiative. I went up. He was preaching about reaching the world. And I can't believe it was so arrogant of me as like this kid to say this, but I walked up to Jerry Falwell and I said, Dr. Falwell, I don't understand how in Lynchburg, Virginia, 
we could have the largest Christian university in, you know, in the country. At that point, we already did. And yet we have like four colleges in town that aren't Christian and we're doing nothing to reach those colleges. Like, how can we be proud of that? And a lesson I learned from, from Jerry Sr. Like, you know, if you raise a problem, he assumes you're volunteering to fix it. And, and he gave me his cell phone number and said, call me tomorrow. And I did. And this leader who was on the phone with world leaders every five minutes, traveling around all the time, you know, he made, he, he, he made time for me within 48 hours in his office. And I gave him my vision to reach those college students. And that's what eventually led for, to me becoming a campus pastor. I just went up to him after the church service. Wow. Well, Johnny, your background, share, if you would, a few minutes about uh, you didn't have a lot of strong influences in your life. Uh, so tell me about that. Well, you know, I think when people see a young leader, you know, they, they think a young leader, and I, you know, I'm, I'm 37 now, right? So, I, you know, I, 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 I'm yes, yes. still a young leader, but a young, but kind of a youngish leader you know, <laughs> or something. But, but they, but they think like you were, you know, you were born into privilege or you, you know, you, you somehow inherited this or you know, that's not, that's not my story. I mean, I, I have an amazing father and a, a wonderful mother. Um, like most parents, as I am a parent, imperfect. Mm -hmm. um, and they, and they were the products of, 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 and are the products of their own experiences as well. And you know, I, I, as a kid, my, my parents went through an incredibly traumatic uh, divorce. And, you know, as an adult, I view that differently now than I did as a kid. You know, I, I, I viewed it quite judgmentally as a kid. You, you, and you'll sort of read some of that in my very, very first book. Um, but as an adult, you know, I, I, I see it differently. I had more grace for them uh, than I did um, than I did back then because of the because I, I know that they were struggling themselves, you know, as, as individuals. It wasn't just us as kids that were struggling. Um, but my, but my parents, uh, uh, divorce, uh, you know, led to a series of, of very, very, very difficult, uh, events in our, in our lives. I mean, it thrust us into, uh, into real poverty. We were on public assistance and people were bringing us bread. And, you know, I know what it's like to have the, the lights turned off at your house. You know, I, I know what it's like to have a family member, uh, who just can't deal with it anymore um to to try to take their own life i i found my family member in their car after they they had uh, tried to kill themselves and I probably saved my family member's life because i found them um but i, I as a, a traumatizing event as a child we moved you know I, I don't i forgot how many times we moved before i was 12 years old i mean it was 20 times or something from house to house to house to house like it was you know, it was, it was not, not an easy, an easy childhood, but by, by the grace of God and because of youth pastors and, and Christian leaders in my life, like my, my youth pastor at, at Florence Baptist Temple in Florence, South Carolina, when we ended up, um, we were going to a Christian school, we couldn't pay the bill anymore. They, they um, you know, we ended up not being able to go to the school anymore. So all of a sudden we're in a public school, which is great. You know, I, I, you know, I'm, I, my, my son is in a public school now. I had a great public school experiences and I had good Christian school experiences. But, but we ended up in this, one of the worst public schools in the state of South Carolina. And 
uh, violence in the school every single day. I mean, people bringing weapons to school, you know, the principal of the school being knocked out cold uh, by, by a student he called into discipline. I, I, I saw as a, as a middle schooler, someone being thrown through a, a glass window. I mean, it, you know, so if things weren't worse enough, bad enough because of my family, all of a sudden I end up in this war zone. And yet, you know, once a week, uh, my youth pastor was allowed to come to the school and I didn't have any friends. I had, I mean, I was just in this, in an earthquake, uh, a traumatic, traumatic earthquake. And there the youth pastor was to have lunch with a few of the kids at the church, you know, and he, it, periodically he would come and it would be like my lifeline, you know, and I, and in God's wonderful providence, about six months before my parents' marriage fell apart, uh, I, I, I would say is when I really, really found uh, the, the Lord. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's when it happened. I, I was a kid, I had prayed a prayer, and maybe I was saved then, I don't know. But at this point in my life, I really came to understand it. And, and it was amazing. I remember to this day, rolling over in my bed at night, looking at the wall and, and praying and asking God to, to save me if I wasn't already saved. Uh, and I, I confess my belief in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And then something happened. A, a, a Sunday school teacher in our church um, began to teach us how to study the Bible. And from 9 to 9.30 every single night as a kid, in a kid's way, I'd just open up the Bible, I'd read a Bible verse, and I'd write my little notes, in which I have that notepad, you know, as a kid. And it's, it's sometimes not discernible. It's, it's, you know, it's childlike thoughts. But, but in that notepad, um, one day I read about Solomon as a young kid asking for wisdom. I read that verse and I wrote in the notepad, God, if you could give wisdom to Solomon, will you give wisdom to me? And as a kid, uh, almost the same age as Solomon at the, at, mm -hmm. at the time. And I, and I really think that that prayer and that series of events um, anchored my life in, into God's plan for my life that transcended those storms. And it's amazing that when my parents, uh, when their marriage fell apart, I became the diplomat, you know, because I ended up a, a, in a relationship with both my mom and my dad when they couldn't talk to each other. And I would do like shuttle diplomacy. I'd get on the phone and talk to dad and I'd talk to mom and talk to dad and talk to mom. I'm like 13, 14 years old, you know, and here I am as an adult and, you know, a lot of my uh, human rights work and religious freedom work around the world involves diplomacy, being a peacemaker between groups of people that can't talk to each other. And so you see like what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. Um, and I, and I, I could just, I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll leave it there. I agree, I agree 100%, Johnny. I've been privileged to be with you in a lot of those kind of situations. Uh, I know how effective you are. I remember telling somebody at one of those gatherings that just made a comment you know, what credentials do you have for being here? And I said, man, I don't have any. So I went through six broken homes and six foster homes, and I spent my life trying to put Band-Aids on situations to get things to stick together uh, the best I could just to survive. And I said, I kind of view what's going on around the world in the same light. Somebody better have a big box of Band-Aids and care enough to try to get these two groups together. But I agree with you. I think our childhoods and our backgrounds uh, certainly gave us the ability to empathize 
and, the, and to realize there's two sides to every situation. Uh, Johnny, now- you know, Jay, before you, know, you move on, let me just say like, education is essential in the world that we're living in, essential. It is also entirely inadequate because the problem with education is education can give you a piece of paper that convinces you that you know everything. And that is a very, very dangerous, dangerous thing. You have to have both. You have to have, you have to know history and you have to, you have to know all of these things. You have to have education, but you have to have more than education. And, and those are the types of things you can only get through, through lived experience. That's a great point. The experience you're forced to live through or those that you, you choose to live through. That's a great insight, Johnny. Uh, I, my, one of my favorite, all-time favorite quotes, one of them, uh, is uh, that education shows me where I can go to find the answer. Mm. That's all education. It's not an end. I, you know, whenever students say, well, how much education do I need? Do I need a bachelor's, do I, a master's? Uh, does it matter how many majors I have? You know, those kind of, and those are honest, legitimate questions for students. But I just, what's really helped me is that whether I'm reading a book or whether it's a podcast or an audible book I'm listening to being uh, dyslexic so bad and ADDDD audible books saved my life. But uh, education is simply, has taught me, I don't know all the answers, but I'm almost to the place where I know where to go find the answers. Hmm. And I came to that definition long before I started doing the Google you know, which has changed everything. You get shorthand, but, but that's all education is. It helps you know where to go, or it lets you know that all of us are smarter than any one of us. And I sometimes wish leaders would remember that, because sometimes they, you know, we feel, well, I'm the smartest guy in the room. And, and I have found that all of us together are smarter than any one of us. Now, Johnny, you, left Liberty University. Everybody was shocked when you left Liberty University, and probably you were too. But you'd been given an opportunity, uh, knowing how you felt about preparing students for the future, but the cultural issues going on, an opportunity to move to Hollywood, an opportunity to be with one of the most successful film producers, TV producers, uh, around. Uh, that was a great opportunity. And I know you probably felt like it's too good to pass up. Yeah, I mean, I, I was recruited to Hollywood. Uh, I, you know, I, I never had any uh, am, ambition to be in the entertainment industry. I you know, never imagined I would be in the entertainment industry. Um, but what what led me to be recruited there is I was serving my, my passion, even when I was at Liberty, one of my passions, which is, you know, to help persecuted Christians around the world, to be a voice for human rights and religious freedom. And that, that took me to Jordan. And through a series of events too long to describe now, I, I ended up in a meeting in Jordan uh, that, that was convened by the king and about 50 people. And those 50 people included uh, several um, evangelicals, of course, and then uh, three Catholic cardinals, the Grand Mufti of Egypt, uh, I think five of the seven Orthodox patriarchs, 
all, all of the uh, significant Anglican leaders throughout the Middle East, and it was all about the, the threats to the Christian community in the Middle East. And among those that were in the crowd were uh, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey. So they, they were part of the 50. And the reason why they were part of the 50 is because of a series of events in Mark's life. Uh, because back in, um, in uh, 2001, uh, just before 9-11, um, Mark, Mark Burnett was uh, uh, going to produce Survivor in Jordan and everything was all in place and eventually it had to be canceled because of, because of 9-11. But through the process, Mark met the King of Jordan and they became personal friends. And you know, it's amazing. You see the domino of, of, of you know, relationships of God's hand at work in the, in the world. Like, you know, I, I, somehow what affected my life was all the way back in 2001 when Mark, you know, meets the King of Jordan. That meant that Mark ended up in this meeting around 2013, I, I think it was. And, and I was there and I was there because of another uh, friend. And, you know, I, I met them and I said, you know what, you ought to come speak at Liberty University sometime. We have this chapel, there are 10,000 students in it, it happens three times a week. They, they were producing more and more content for, um, for Christian audiences, like the Bible miniseries and the Son of God movie and all these things. And so, so I met them, I invited them to come. They decided to come and they spoke at campus and it was an incredible, incredible experience for everyone. And, you know, I'm just doing my job. I'm show, showing Mark around campus and Mark looks at me and he says, you know, I think we're gonna do something together one day. And I said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's, that's interesting. And I didn't think much of it. I mean, I. You know, I, I put them, you know, back at the airports and off they went. And I went on with my, with my life and bought a house. Andrea was, was, uh, was pregnant um, with our uh, second child. You know, we, we, we bought a, a 10 year house, I would say, like we were gonna, we were gonna just be at Liberty forever. And then out of the blue one day, I get a cold call. Uh, it's, you know, my phone in the office rings. It's uh, a Hollywood assistant. Says uh, Johnny Moore, I have Mark Burnett for you. Uh, can you are you available? Said, oh, sure, you know. And that's where Mark Burnett invited me on the fly, you know, to come to Hollywood to become his chief of staff and vice president of faith content for um, for his company, which at the time was called One Three Media. It was acquired by MGM uh, while while I was there. Uh, and that's that's how I ended up in Hollywood, you know. And, and it's interesting. I, I asked Mark because at first I turned him down because I just you know I was content at Liberty. I, you know, I didn't know anything about the entertainment industry. And I, I said to Mark, it's like, why me? You know, and, and Mark told me, he said, look, there's a gigantic line outside of my door of people with, with experience in the entertainment industry. You know, if I wanted someone that knew the entertainment industry, easy, believe me, every single one of them would come work for me. So, but I, I don't need that. You know, I, I, need, I need someone like you. And then he told me the reasons why, which is a private conversation. Um, and that, uh, that, that led to this, I mean, just, I could have never imagined. And, and to, you know, in a job like being chief of staff to Mark Burnett is a big job in Hollywood. Like this is just doesn't happen except, you know, clearly this was, this was something God was, was doing. And I, and I can tell you, and this may sound strange to people, but leaving Lynchburg, Virginia and Liberty university to go to Hollywood, um, was huge step outside of my comfort zone 
Okay, sure. it was outside of my comfort zone. It wasn't in my comfort zone. It was, it was a terrifying- uh, You were going to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> well, it was, it, you know, but that is what's interesting. You know, that is the reputation of Hollywood, right? You know, right. it's a very non-religious place. I found the exact opposite. I, I, I didn't one time encounter, you know, and we're in a slightly different moment now in, because of politics. But, but in my experience there, I did not find one circumstance where I was judged uh, for being an, an evangelical Christian. In fact, it was the opposite. I ended up in all these amazing, amazing discussions. You know, as a practical matter, for instance, I don't drink. You know, I've never had a drink in my life. I'm a, you know, I'm a good old Baptist. And I get in these, in a lot of business in Hollywood is done around drinks. And so, yeah, I'd always have a, you know, a club soda with a lime. And, and it's like, you know, why? And, and I'd say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm religious. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Baptist. We, we follow the you know, the tradition of John the Baptist. And, you know, and, and it was interesting. It was kind of cool. I, I ended up like a monk. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're kind of like monks. There's certain things we don't do in the world because of our, because of our faith. You know, it was kind of cool, you know, in a, in a culture that, that uh, sometimes has the exact opposite uh, approach. And so I, I found the doors uh, just amazingly wide open. And that was a temporary season of my life. It led to my founding my company. Um, but, I, but it was an amazing, amazing uh, amazing experience. Well, by the way, that company, that little company you started at the time has morphed into a very significant uh, enterprise. Uh, tell us a little bit about Kairos. Yeah, it's a, it's a communications firm, you know, mainly a strategy firm. It's a, also a public relations firm, but I, I make it clear to people that you know, we're not just a public relations firm. You know, every, every publicity, public relations, communications firm, they all do the same things in terms of their tactics, right? Their press releases and their, you know, the, the editorials that they place and the pitches that they make to reporters, those are all tactics. What, what really sets us apart is that we're strategists. Hmm. Uh, we, 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 the way we think about our, our, um, the messages and the missions of the organizations that we work with is different. You know, and it's not our job to be those organizations or to change their messages and missions. It's our job to just help them uh, reach more people with those messages and to fulfill their mission more, more effectively. That, that, that's what we do. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, thank, thank God. I mean, it's become quite, quite successful. And, you know, it's interesting. Some people think like, because I'm a business person now, you know, that I somehow left uh, the ministry. And it's the exact opposite. I mean, now the beautiful thing is like my ministry is almost entirely voluntary and, and it's, it's an amazing, amazing blessing. Like I'm, I'm every bit, you know, the, the, uh, the, the pastor that I was, even though I don't have a congregation, it's just, it's just different. You know, I, it's like very, very traditionally Christian, right? I mean, the apostle Paul uh, was a tent maker. You know, he went from city to city making tents. That's how we, you wonder how, why he was so effective why he was able to reach so many people and to plant so many churches. It's because, you know, he wasn't just preaching in the synagogues on the weekends. He was working. He had calluses on his hands. He met the merchants in the markets that he bought his supplies from. He had dinner with the clients that he was selling his tents to. He, he was immersed inside of society. He, he, he didn't withdraw Christianity from culture. He lived with, as a Christian within culture. And, you know, I, 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 I've sometimes said, like, you know, God forbid that if God's call for you is to be a, uh, a, a, a preacher, 
and pastor a church that you dare that you, you know, dare stoop so low as to become a business person. But God forbid, if God's call for you is to be a business person, that you dare stoop so low, you know, as to become a, a pastor of a church. And God forbid, if God's call is for you to do all of it, that you don't refuse him in, in, in that call. And, and for me, I mean, it's, uh, you know, our, our problem in the world isn't that we have um, too, too many, uh, uh, too few pastors sometimes. We, sometimes we have too few missionaries in certain places. But our problem in the world isn't that we have too few pastors sometimes. It's that we have too few Christians who, who are willing to be um, a Christian with their gifts and talents where they, you know, where God assigns them to be. And sometimes, by the way, when it comes to our missionary activity around the world, you know, it's one thing if you're going to an unreached place. We need Green Beret missionaries in unreached places. But you know what we need in reached places or places where there are opportunities? We need to be like Paul. We need to go be doctors and lawyers and nurses and accountants and financial managers and teachers. You know, we just need to be Christians in culture, you know, and then we won't probably look with such, you know, absurdity at the culture around us and wonder where uh, the Christian witness is. It's because we left. That, that's why. And we need to go back inside of it. And if they won't let us inside of it, we need to create our own. Well, Johnny, speaking of being willing to go um, wherever God calls you to go, if my memory's right, you were working on a much anticipated, significant Christian film, a remaking of uh, Ben-Hur, one of the most beloved uh, stories, uh, I think. Lou Wallace wrote the book and uh, Charleston Heston helped make it famous. But uh, you were working on the remake, filming there in the Middle East, when you heard about a situation going on uh, a couple hours away at what is many believe literally the birthplace of Christianity. And yet there was a slaughter going on. There were some things happening. And tell me, tell us about that moment where the light came on that the Lord spoke, you know, Damascus road, call it what you want. It was a game changer. I believe one of several in your life where because you were obedient, some amazing doors have swung open. Tell yeah, us about that. It was actually one, just one step before Ben-Hur. You know, we, we, uh -huh. were, we were uh, working on, Mark and Wilmer were producing, and I, I was you know, doing my, my part uh, on, a, on a television series uh, for NBC called uh, AD. Uh, and AD was the Book of Acts. And the Book of Acts, is a lot about persecuted Christians. And it was being filmed in Morocco. And every day, it was an amazing experience. I mean, being in Hollywood and being in London, which is where the uh, writing uh, team was uh, and the production team, and then Morocco, uh, where the set was, we're literally reading the book of Acts every single day. And, and the scripts would come and we would, I mean, it was an amazing, amazing experience to see the Bible in the height of Hollywood, NBC, primetime, all, all coming together. It was an amazing, amazing experience. And yet simultaneously, in Iraq and Syria, we were seeing the worst Christian persecution that we had seen in generations, maybe centuries, and what I eventually came to call a once in a thousand year event. Because, you know, Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion, okay? 
it, it wasn't founded in Kansas. You know, it was, it, you know, it, it came from the Middle East. And uh, I, I remember one night I uh, received an email late at night. Um, and the, the, the email was from a, a Syrian pastor. And the Syrian pastor was describing uh, the bombs that were hitting his home. And he was doing it in real time. Uh, I mean, literally on his cell phone, the lights were out and he's typing. Um, you know, I hear the blast all around me, you know, what's, I don't, I'm not sure what the best thing to do is to go try to go to sleep so that if the bombs hit, then I'm asleep or try to run out of the house. I mean, it's like reading the diary of Anne Frank. He's like writing this on his cell phone. And then he writes, just now it finally hit us shaking this big building that I, that I'm living in. And I, I was just reading this email that came in from a random Syrian pastor sent to, sent to me. As I'm working on this story about the persecution of Christians from 2000 years earlier, it was late at night. My wife and, and kids were asleep. My one month old daughter uh, was, was asleep. And that's where I knew like, I just had to go and see it for myself. And so within weeks, I, I had gotten on a commercial airline because you still could. I flew into Erbil in northern Iraq when ISIS was at its absolute height. They were 20 kilometers uh, from the Baghdad airport on the days uh, that, I, that I was there. They were not, not far from Erbil. There were thousands of Christians that had recently been run out of their historic towns. And I just heard their stories. And story after story after story of people being sold on modern slave markets and Christian houses being marked and forcible conversions. And I, I remember sitting with this nun uh, late at night uh, because she had worked all day long. And she said, um, Johnny, I love America. It's a beautiful country, wonderful people. She said, I have a PhD from an American university. She said, you take care of your pets so well. So why are you silent in the face of our genocide? And it, it was one of the most impactful conversations of my life. And I, I decided at that point, I couldn't be silent. I had to tell the story of these people and I had to help them. And, and so we did. I, I, I wrote a book called Defying ISIS, Preserving Christianity in the, in the Place of Its Birth. And then Mark and Roma used the full power of their Hollywood platform and, and started a number of initiatives that, that I was able to run that eventually raised over $20 million to help Christians uh, in, in, in Northern Iraq. It, it was at that time that we had a vision of what could happen if the, if the United States government intervened. And it wasn't something that was possible then, but in this administration, uh, we've seen that plan happen where the United States government has sent $300 million into Northern Iraq to help the Christian and Yazidi uh, communities. Hmm. And, and, you know, it's we not all me. There were a lot of people involved. We don't read about that, do we, Johnny? We don't hear about that. <laughs> no, no, because it's, it's, it's uh, inconvenience for certain pol politicians to talk about those things, unfortunately. But, but, but as an aside, this administration has done more to save lives than any previous administration. More humanitarian assistance than any previous administration. By the way, right now, amid COVID-19, the United States has, by double, provided more aid around the world than any single country. Just, just, 
yesterday, yesterday, okay, we, we provided hundreds and hundreds of ventilators to Pakistan, okay, at a, at a time when two months ago, we were in a national crisis because the ventilator stockpile hadn't been filled up after the previous administration's H1N1 crisis. They never filled up the stockpile. And this administration decided to, to use a rarely used um, military authority called the Defense uh, Production Act. And the president uh, ordered American factories to start, uh, start manufacturing ventilators. They've manufactured over 50,000. They're on their way to 100,000. Like you ne never hear about any of that stuff. But one of the lessons I, I took away from going to Northern Iraq is uh, you just have to act if you care. You have to do something, even if it's wrong. You have to do something. And it's amazing what will happen if you, if you, just, if you just act. I, and I also learned that the most important thing to do in these crises around the world, whether it's in our country or in other countries, and there's no comparison between our country and, uh, and, and these other circumstances, I'm not try, drawing that comparison, but, but when there are crises of whatever type, the most important thing that you can do is go sit down and listen to the victims and then be their voice. That's the most important thing that you can do. And that makes all the difference all, all, all around the world. In, in fact, just before COVID-19, uh, a rabbi friend of mine from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Rabbi Abraham Cooper and I, uh, we, we went to Nigeria two weeks uh, before the world shut down because of COVID. And what did we do? Yeah, we met with the leaders of the country and we met with the politicians. We did all that stuff. We met with all the religious leaders. But most importantly, we spent two full days sitting down listening to dozens and dozens of victims of, of terrorism uh, and, of, and of what I call genocide against, against the Christian community in parts of, parts of that country. Unfortunately, it's now, in my opinion, reached the level that you can say it's genocidal activity uh, and we just listen to them tell tell their own terrifying stories most of you know, us are not even aware johnny forgive me most of us in the united states and the west is not even aware of that kind of significant percent of the pop you know being christian you know you think of nigeria that's not you don't think of that as a christian you know where there'd be significant christians and so to be there listening to them and valuing them, I know was a great encouragement and I know that's led to you, uh, which is no surprise knowing your background. Uh, there's a couple action steps that have come out of that. And I look forward to, and in fact, my closing question for you, which I'm not ready to do right now, but is gonna be what's next, where do we, you know, what, what's the other thing that's going to be revealed has been a blind spot uh, to us? And uh, I, know, I know the answer to that because I know some things you're working on already. But Johnny, you know, that event where you went and listened, went to Northern Iraq, uh, led to you doing a very bold action. And, uh, you know, most people would lead with that and want to tell everybody, this is what I did. Uh, I've always found I kind of have to pry it out of you a couple. I have to uh, get you under the influence of a couple coffees before you uh, will spill uh, uh, the beans. But I, I happen to be privileged to be with you the night in Los Angeles 
when I watched you be honored in, in a world that I knew nothing about. I knew about Simon Wiesenthal, obviously the great defender, if you will, and, and pursuer of truth and righteousness and justice in the Simon Wiesenthal centers known globally. But you got an award. I think it was one of four that night. And all I know is there were folks that were had a part in the program that I never would have associated, you know, would showed how shallow my life had been, but Barbara Streisand and three or four others that are not known as strong supporters of most of the things, you know, were there when you received this honor. And uh, so tell our, our viewers and listeners about how a young man trying to do his job well, heard about something that you knew from your biblical background, your experience was breaking the heart of God. You go to check on the Christians that are there, and then you hear of another group being greatly persecuted. Tell that story if you would. Well, I mean, the first of all, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, as you, as you said, I mean, I, you know, and I know the story of Simon Wiesenthal. Our students ought to be taught the story of Simon Wiesenthal. He was an amazing, amazing man. He, he lost 89 members of his family in the Holocaust. Hmm. 89 members of his family. He, his last uh, memory of his mother was chasing the train that she was put on, hmm. trying to say goodbye. Simon Wiesenthal was a, uh, a trained architect who, after barely surviving um, the, the, uh, the Holocaust, liberated by America, and, and for the rest of his life, he was a fan of the United States of America. He was a patriot, even though he wasn't American, uh, because of the role the United States played in liberating um, uh, Europe uh, from, from, uh, from Hitler. Yet, as a trained architect who could have made a fortune rebuilding Europe uh, after World War II, as, as millions and millions of dollars poured in, uh, and the, the, you know, as, as, as we know, I mean, the whole world rallied around, he could have made a fortune. Instead, he decided to invest the rest of his life in hunting Nazis, one after another after another. And why did he do it? He did it because he said, the, one of the worst things that Hitler had done is he had deconstructed justice. And so justice had to be reconstructed. And, and that, that demanded that someone found every last one of these criminals and ensured that those criminals paid for, for their crime. And so the Simon Wiesenthal Center is, uh, is the, the legacy of Simon Wiesenthal. It's named after him. Um, and... Uh, I, I, uh, I heard of the Simon Wiesenthal Center because they were the first organization to say that genocide was being committed against Christians uh, and Yazidis in, nor in Northern Iraq. No Christian organization had said it. It was a Jewish organization that was the first one to say it. And uh, I, I ended up getting in touch with them and they, they heard about what I was doing in the book that I'd written and you know, the people that we had evacuated and all this stuff. Uh, which I never take any credit for because there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people involved. It was the, the only thing I could take credit for is I was one of those 
uh, in, involved and, and sometimes the mouthpiece of the rest of them. But um, they, they give these awards out every year. Um, on that night, uh, the son of a, a Christian pastor who had saved uh, hundreds of people from the Nazis, hundreds of Jews from the Nazis was honored. Uh, Shimon Peres, uh, the former uh, prime minister of Israel uh, was posthumously honored. Uh, his son, his own son received the award and me, and I didn't deserve it. And I still don't think I deserve it. But, and in fact, once again, you know, when, when the rabbis called me to tell me that they and the board had decided to give me the, this, this award, I turned them down. And I turned them down because I didn't believe I could take credit for it uh, because of all the others that were involved and, and I was just one. But the rabbis quoted something from the Talmud, uh, which, which says like, those who d feel like they don't deserve an honor are those who deserve an honor. And so they, they refused to let me not take it. And so they, they refused gave your refusal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I was not allowed to refuse. You know, and it was this crazy moment because there I was having gone to Hollywood uh, as, a, as, you know, as a chief of staff. So you know, it was a huge, big, gigantic job. But, you know, I wasn't a, I wasn't a head of a studio or any of that. I was, you know, I was still, it was just a job. You know, it wasn't, wasn't you know, it was a big job, but not those types of jobs. Right. And yet in that audience that evening was the chair or the vice chair of virtually every major Hollywood studio or production house, anything you've ever heard of. They were all there, countless celebrities in that audience. And yet in this strange moment, you know, I was standing being honored in front of all these people. And the only reason why is just because I acted when a lot of people didn't act. And what I said that evening was that my vision is that one day that it will be so common for people to act when there's an issue around the world that these awards will become totally irrelevant because there's no one deserving of honor anymore because everyone deserves, uh, d deserves the honor. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a crazy, uh, crazy, crazy experience. Tell about the huh? tell, me, tell, tell our viewers and listeners what it was that you did. When you did act, it was a bold act. It was something had to be done, I believe, almost immediately. And you saw the consequences right in front of you. Well, we, I we, think we, what you do in those pressure-filled moments, nothing reveals more of what's inside us than when we're squeezed. And I believe you felt what the body of Christ should have felt, the whole body. Uh, so tell us what that one act was, John. Well, we, we evacuated people. So, so there were these Christians and, and Yazidis um, who were under threat. I made a decision early on. It wasn't for me to decide whether Christians stayed or left. I, how can I make that decision? A family that's been in a place for generations, like not, not for me to decide. But what I did decide was if they were going to leave, they deserve the right to be able to leave safely and legally. And if they were gonna stay, they deserve the right to be able to stay with food in their stomachs and a roof over their heads uh, and, and safety. And so um, I, I, I was on a, a radio show uh, and uh, the, 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 it was Glimbeck's radio show um, and Glenn Beck at the end of the radio show, he said, well, what are you working on? 
now. And I, and I said, well, I want to help get Christians uh, out of Iraq. And at that point, I was trying to get them to Mexico because they were Catholics and Mexico is a Catholic country. And I was talking to some very fluent uh, Mexicans who owned an airline. And, I, you know, I thought maybe we could get them out um, and, and Mexico would take them in. Uh, and uh, and Glenn, Glenn said, he said, well, if you want to help, um, and at this point, I was thinking about a couple of families, like just something, just don't, you know, just do something. You save, as, as the Jewish community often says, if you just save one life, it's equivalent to saving the world. So I just want to save a family. That's all, a couple of families. And Glenn said on the radio show, he said, if you want to help Johnny with this, give to our charity and that money will go to help evacuate people. And that was on Friday. By Sunday, a million dollars had come in. And it just grew, it grew from there. Eventually it was over $15 million. I mean, it just grew and grew and grew. And uh, we, we ended up chartering an airplane uh, for our first evacuation um, and negotiating uh, citizenship for um, about 200 Christian Catholics uh, to, to go to Slovakia. Um, and, and that's a long story and an amazing story and too much to say in our remaining time. Um, but but we, 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 we evacuated uh, in our first, first time, like 70 families, 200 people, it was crazy, uh, in, into, into Slovakia, uh, into, a, into a, a historic Christian town there. Um, and then that fund, and again, my job is at, at that point, I, I've, now, I've now taken a different sort of path in establishing the Congress of Christian Leaders and the Persecution Fund where I'm doing, I'm, I'm more focused myself on, on some of these things. But at the time, that was not God's responsibility for me. It was to start things and to let other people do things. And that's what I did with the Nazarene Fund. Uh, so Glenn and I ended up starting the Nazarene Fund. And that, that organization was fully autonomous. Now I have nothing to do with it. Um, it, it, has, it has now resettled. I, I, it's, it's certainly over 10,000 people. I think it's over 15,000 people. Totally emptied out refugee camps. Facilitated, facilitated harrowing rescues of, of Yazidi girls you know, that had been, um, uh, that had been bought for the most, not just slavery, the most inhumane type of slavery you can possibly imagine. Um, you know, it's like crazy. And, and again, I don't think I deserve any of it. I, I, I just said there was a need and had a half baked plan and people were willing to, uh, to act. Wow. Well, Johnny, first of all, I want to thank you for even giving the shout out and well-deserved recognition to Glenn Beckford. I never knew of Glenn's involvement in that project and that it's ongoing uh, still. So uh, I, uh, it's one of the many things I admire about you is that there's a, there's a lot of folks that help us. Together, we, you know, uh, it, takes a tr it takes a team to build a dream and to launch a dream, and it takes a team to fulfill the Great Commission. And if we all do what we can do, amazing things will happen. I can't do what I can't do, but if I can do it, I've got to do it. And uh, so thank you for the you way think, you unpacked that. You think there, Jay, like Glenn could have just ended the interview. Yeah. But, he, but he stopped and he said, you know what? If you want to help, give, you know, and just because he did that. And there's so many things in our life. 
every single day that if we just listen to that quiet voice in our hearts, hmm. just decide that compassion requires action. Even if it's a small action, if it's sending a tweet or whatever. And by the way, this sounds really noble now. Back then, it was really controversial, really controversial. When I wrote Defying ISIS, I was called every name in the book because people were saying I was politicizing it and I was exaggerating it. It took, it took ISIS beheading 21 cops on a beach in Libya to get the world to recognize the truth of what ISIS was doing and what they, what they, what they were attempting to do and what they were doing. Before that, like I, you know, this was not a popular thing to do. And I, yeah. and I tell people all the time, and I wanna tell the people listening to us, like controversy is overrated, okay? Everything is controversial to someone. Like if you're gonna decide, if you're gonna decide that you, you, you're not gonna do something because it's controversial, or you're not gonna raise your voice because it's controversial, or you're not gonna act because it's controversial, you're gonna be nothing, you're gonna do nothing with, with your life. You know, and, and I'm sorry, but God requires that we have faith and that we have courage in the world that we're living in now. Well, and it's, it's amazing to me, the Lord will use individuals that those of us as preachers would have never thought about ever being used in that role. And uh, so I bring us to a close, but yet uh, something that you can speak to uh, like very few can. Uh, we have a president today. It's very controversial. Never misses an opportunity to deal with somebody that he thinks needs to be dealt with. Um, I've lovingly suggested a couple times, my little league coach taught me, man, don't swing at balls out of the strike zone, you know. But this individual, and it, everybody still seems to be shocked that there are so many evangelical leaders that stand with this president and are praying for him and encouraging him and giving advice and counsel and sometimes saying, Mr. President, we wish you'd think that through or pray about. I mean, you know, he's the, he is approachable. He listens. Uh, he, you have to prove your point. You got to bring your lunch. You got to wear protection. You know what I mean? You got to be willing to show him why this issue matters. But in all my years, I never would have dreamed that the president that's done, I, there's never been a president who's done pro-life uh, issues more than this president. And we, were, we had some great heroes, the Bushes, Senior and Junior, and, and Ronald Reagan. I mean, we've had some real heroes, those we love, respect, but no one has done what this president has done. And the same, I know everybody loses their mind if you suggest it, even with social justice and reforming the prisons and training inmates and providing help and care for uh, prisoners' families. Uh, I mean, you know, training them a skill before they even leave prison uh, to help them be able to re I mean, it's just overwhelming that a Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump and President Trump, I mean, you'd think they would be, you know, the last who would do some of those issues when the truth is they're quick to have tears, they're quick to care, and if they believe in something, 
uh, Bessie get out of the way because uh, we're going to make an effort to make it happen. So you've been a part of all that. You've seen some of that. But what would you say to all of our evangelical listeners that one thing that you wish they understood or knew about this president? Well, I'd say, number one, as a Christian, you have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ ever. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would say, as a Christian, you have no reason to be ashamed of what this president has done for the United States of America. No reason to be ashamed. If you believe the Bible, okay? If you believe the Bible. If you believe that every single child is made in the image of God, if you, if you, if you believe if you believe in the dignity of the human life of every single child, like you're judging by his works, there has never been a president who's protected the unborn like this president by policy. Never happened before. You know, if, if, if you believe that, that, uh, that religious freedom uh, is, is at the heart of, of all the good that the United States of America has done all around the world, all the people who have been liberated from tyranny, all of, all of the, 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 the way in which God has used uh, the United States of America to literally, as, as evangelical Christians, to evangelize the entire world, to, to you know, from, from our very, very founding, like there's never been a president uh, who has prioritized religious freedom on the degree that this president has. It's at the heart of American foreign policy, not as part of foreign policy. The largest human rights events ever in State Department history have been religious freedom events uh, un, under, this, under this administration. Like, you know, if you, if you believe in justice issues, you know, as, as we all do, and I do immensely, I mean, half of this interview is about justice issues. And here's the amazing thing, like, you know, Jay, it's, it's you know, th these are the things I care about the most. I work on these things, you know, all, all the time. Like the, the president, this president, gave the most significant reform to our criminal justice system in 30 years, in 30 years. Even with the horrible, horrible tragedy of, uh, of uh, the murder of George Floyd, uh, and, and all of the things that have happened around that this summer. Still, while we're talking right here, the only action that has taken place in this country to address those, there are two actions. Certain police departments in the country, like in Minneapolis, have defunded the police, literally defunded the police, while the same counselors that defunded the police have used taxpayer money to hire private security for themselves. That's what's happened. A billion dollars taken out of the police in New York City, $150 million taken out of the police in Los Angeles. My Jewish friends uh, in Los Angeles are worried sick about the um, amounts of money taken out of the police department in Los Angeles because of anti-Semitism. So those actions have taken place. Do you know what the other action that's taken place? The president of the United States signed an executive order after meeting with the families of victims of, of racism and violence he signed an executive order taking immediate executive action, doing basically everything that everybody asked him to do. A national database in order to keep track of, of the very few, you know, people who um, are, are, are bad eggs, you know, in, in, you know th throughout the country. Right now, we, we didn't have that. You know, he, he banned certain practices. He did. He's actually taken those actions. Like, you know, if you, if you care about the family, you know, aside from pro-life issues, you know, the, the prosperity of the of, of, of uh, the recent you know, years in the Trump administration and is already sort of rebooting uh, the, sec the second quarter after the pandemic you know, has, the, has had the most significant rise ever. You know, the, these things, you know, this is also a president that doubled the child tax credit. 
That means if you're a working family, mm. you get double the tax credit for, for, your, for your children. I mean, it just like goes on and on and on and on. And, and I know, you know, that there's controversy around this president. There's some, some of, you know, these tweeted things that certain people don't like and all, all of these things. But what I can tell you is, I, I, there's a principle I learned long ago uh, from a mentor of mine. Um, and, and that is that you, if, if you have a relationship with someone, you, you privately criticize and you publicly praise. And I can tell you that evangelicals mm. have had a total open door. And that open door hasn't just been an open door of giving credit where credit is due, though we're more than happy to do that. And I think it's an incredible shame that he doesn't receive a lot of credit that is due to him. But it's also been an open door to have a constructive and substantive seat at that table. And there have been countless circumstances, countless circumstances, some of which Jay's mentioned here, where you know, this president, because he, he, he respects the evangelical community, he listens to the evangelical community, where there have been significant course corrections uh, 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 along the way. And so you know, I, am, I am totally unashamed of my, of my support of this president. And the one word of advice I give to people all the time is just don't read the newspapers and don't pay attention to Twitter is an artificial universe. Okay. Just go to the whitehouse.gov website and do what you do. If you're a researcher and go to the primary sources and read the speeches and read the executive orders and look at the policy and, you know, and, and when it's all said and done, uh, I, I think if, if someone's going to accuse Christians like me of, of uh, being too close to tax collectors, you know, and publicans or whatever they, the, the, you know, the, the King James says that they were like, fine. You know, if Jesus himself was criticized of that, then I am more than happy to be criticized of that. But, but I, I'm very, very proud of the role um, that, that evangelicals have pay, played in this administration. Now, government is, this is not a theocracy. It should never be a theocracy. and Nobody wants it to be a theocracy. It's freedom of religion for all. And I fight for freedom of religion for everybody, Christian or not. It's not supposed to be a theocracy. But, but there are real efforts underway in this country to deconstruct what has made America the brightest shining light uh, in the world, the most prosperous country successful country, the most free country in the world, the country that has promoted human rights, the country that has saved countless millions of lives around the world. Uh, and, and, and I can tell you, you know, there really are two visions for the world that we're living in right now. Uh, there, there, is a, there is a resurgent uh, totalitarian communism uh, that, that is personified by the second wealthiest country in the world, led by the Communist Party of China. The Chinese people are wonderful, wonderful people incredible people. We, we, we pray every day for the, for, for the people of China. But the Chinese Communist Party, okay, is the alternative vision for the world that we're living in right now. Or there is the freedom that has brought the world more peace and prosperity ever. And as, a, as an American Christian, you have no reason to be ashamed of your, of your country. Yet there are all these forces within Christendom and outside of it that try to make us ashamed of, of America. And I'm sorry, I'm not ashamed of our country. It's brought more good to the world than anyone. And I'm not ashamed of the actions that this, this president has, has taken. And I, and I also you know, want to make, make sure that we, uh, uh, we, we um, maintain the grace that Christians are supposed to have. Uh, and, and let me tell you, uh, the next time uh, you're tempted 
uh, to judge the president of the United States, I just want you to stop for a second and put yourself in the shoes of a leader who every single day has to deal with problems that are incomprehensible to everyday people. They get, to, they get an intelligence briefing every day that describes the 15 ways in which the world could fall apart in the next, next 24 hours. Uh, and I think everybody deserves a little bit of grace, including the leader of the free world. Wow, great insights, Johnny. Uh, the book Defying ISIS is a book that I want all of our students to read and all of our listeners to examine. I also love for, especially for young people, but it's true for everybody, what am I supposed to do with my life? And I love the subtitle, uh, Demystifying God's Will. In other words, how to make it Waterford crystal clear. How can I know God's will for my life? And Johnny, uh, of course, the Martyr's Oath, that's a whole separate program. We've got to do those steps. Uh, I believe it's a modern equivalent to Fox's book of Christian martyrs. Uh, I have a Fox's book of Christian martyrs and Johnny Moore's uh, Martyr's Oath on my desk in my office. Now, it's been a month since I've been allowed to be in my office. But anyway, that's a whole other story. We all know about those things. But uh, that'll be over soon, I pray. But Johnny, I, uh, and then we're going to do a program, and I already know the way is just not take no for an answer. I learned that. You told me that's the secret to get you to do what you need to do. So I'm not going to take no for an answer on uh, the new book coming out uh, when we get to around October, when we get close. I want to really have you unpack that because I believe you, you again, are going to be way ahead of the curve and helping us maybe get on the front end uh, instead of it being in the fourth chapter uh, when, when we get involved. So uh, I'm very grateful for you, Johnny Moore. What's the one last closing word you would say to our SLU students? It's, it's that uh, old phrase that uh, inspired uh, leaders before us, people like Dion Moody. Uh, we, have, we have yet to see what God can do through one person uh, who, whose heart is solely sold out to him or solely, solely given to him. And, and I, I just say to everyone listening to us, um, you are probably much, much more important than you think you are. And if you look around and you feel like you're like a little bit of an oddball, you know, and you're kind of going against the tide a little bit and you don't think like everybody else thinks and you're, you know, I think that's a pretty good sign uh, that you're on the, that you're on the right, right track. Um, so yeah, yeah, go, go, go be that person. Uh, so and, blessed and are the oddballs. They'll inherit the kingdom of God, right? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Johnny Moore, uh, thank you for what all you're doing for our country. Uh, I always enjoy when you're in the room. Uh, it's always interesting. Uh, I'm, I spend half my time trying to get you out of trouble, but that's a whole other story. I'm so, too modest to bring up that. But uh, I'm very, very grateful for the influence you have for the kingdom and the influence you have for our country and the, the great love you have for students. Uh, I know that's well, that's part of your DNA from your Liberty years. And uh, thank you for what all you shared with us on the 4th of July. Johnny Moore, 
leader, influencer, uh, young man of God, and uh, can't wait to see what all, how the Lord is going to use you even more in the future. And I hope to block and tackle whenever I get a chance uh, so you can do the dance in the end zone. All right? All right. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Johnny. Yeah, thank you, Jay. Happy that, last, that last question, we're going to, we, um, I've been getting some quotes uh, from, you know, Jack Graham, Pat Williams, and uh, uh, gosh, who else? I'm trying to think. We've had two generals on, two colonels on, you know, but quotes about the president, that what they wish everyone knew that they know. Uh, and I'm going to put together a whole uh, montage of those. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Yeah, we got to do everything we can. I mean, it's because uh, we, we're, we're, they have us fighting with our hand behind their back. Otherwise, we'd be wiping. The, we, we are going to oh sweep gosh. the thing, but, you know. That's you know, it's uh, amazing. It reminds me of the bomb. I'm trying to remember what it was, the, new, uh, the neutron bomb, I think it was where you could drop a bomb and it leave all the buildings intact, but it would just absolutely fry all communications and uh, the ability to get anything done. And it, when you said uh, we're fighting, they're making us fight with one hand behind our back, it's almost as though the media uh, and the, the most radical radical folks that will have an unbelievable role in the next administration. But uh, it's almost as though the media has tried to drop a, new, a neutron bomb. The buildings are all intact, but they're, it's a one-sided conversation. I've never seen anything like it. Fortunately, some of us have big mouths and we're going to do all we can do. That's what I've decided. I've, I've decided the next four months are the most important in my life. We got to get this done. Um, well, for you I children, and I just don't care. I just got to yeah, do everything I got to do. I, I, I think all of us need to worry about everything from our retirement to our grandchildren, to our churches and private Christian schools. And pro, I mean, there's a hundred reasons for every believer to go all hands on the pump. Yep. That's right. Thanks, Johnny. And thank you for listening to There's Always a Way with Dr. Jay Strack. If you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend by taking a screenshot and posting it to your story or tagging us on Instagram or Twitter at the letter J Strack 007. If you haven't yet, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast. Because of you, others are able to be encouraged and equipped by these incredible episodes.